moms and dads and folks kind of work their way back in the room. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. So if you have your Bible or a tablet or a phone that you'll be looking at the text, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 5. We've uh, been in 1 Corinthians now for several weeks. Paul um, finished up chapter 4 for us last week. Um, just as a means of a little bit of recap, uh, 1 Corinthians is the fourth letter that Paul wrote in order. Um, he is writing it from the city of Ephesus. Um, he's writing back to a church that's in the city of Corinth that he had spent 18 months at. He's now been gone for about three years and he's writing letters back to them, continuing to minister to them, to pastor them, to encourage them, um, like, a, like a father, like a pastor would do. Um, Corinth is an interesting city um, in that it had been destroyed um, completely and then was repopulated with former slaves out of Rome. And so although it's in a Greek location with a Greek heritage and history, and culture, it was repopulated um, by freed Roman slaves who for the first time had a chance to advance, um, to create their own way, their own name, their own recognition, their own wealth. And it was, a, it was a port city because it had ports on each side. It set on this thin isthmus um, on a peninsula, four and a half miles wide where boats could be drug across. And so the world just came, right? Like the, the nations came because of trade, because of money, because of um, opportunity. Uh, so the religions of the world, the, the cults of the world, every philosophical idea was present in Corinth. Corinth became known as a place where, where men uh, would go and show off their, their oratory skills and, and begin to try to attract followers. It was a city where, where independence and wisdom were highly valued. And so Paul is writing back to the church in Corinth. And where we've been in the first four chapters was that, that they've kind of, they've emulated their culture more than they've emulated Christ. And in that, they've, they've picked their favorite preachers, right? And they said, this is the guy that I'm going to follow, which is what the culture tended to do. They would pick their favorite speaker, their favorite philosopher. And, and so what Paul is continuing to remind them is this. He's like, but in Christ, we're one. Like, we are one body. We are one family. Only Jesus is the one who died for us. Only He is the one who has rescued us. And so, to boast in Paul or in Apollos or in Peter or these other preachers, he said, they're mere servants, right? You're boasting in those who are meant to come along and point you to Jesus, and, and they're, they're doing their job in being servants. And so, he's been looking to draw them together to, to see the factions go away, to see unity reemerge, because there's a lot of behavioral issues going on in Corinth. And so this morning, we're going to transition into one of the first ones where he, he knew he needed them to be unified because he's going to begin to hit on very specific, very real sins and behavioral issues that have emerged um, within the church. And so, I think before we read 1 Corinthians 5, it's just helpful for us to remember and to be reminded that we, we are in a culture right now that does not like um, fingers pointed at it, okay? Um, and, that's, and that's not pointing fingers at any specific group. It's, it's just kind of everybody, right? And so, if you get on Facebook or if you get on some website and read comments, right, 
it, it, it's just, right, you see the depravity of man, right, in, in the comment sections, that people feel like they have a right to think, to believe, to say, to do whatever they want, and you're not able to say anything to me. And then I feel the same, like, right? I feel likewise, right? And so everyone just kind of, they, they pick their hill to stand on, and then we just point fingers while, while accusing other people of pointing fingers, <laughs> right? And, and so that's kind of where, where we've been. And so throughout the history, the church um, has been accused um, of both being sometimes too lax and too, showing too much grace, but more often it's been said it's too firm and it's, it's too strict and it's too rigid, and it, and it points too many fingers, right? And, and so we, we see churches that try to live in this tension of, you know, where's, where's the, the right place to be in between these two ends? That's where Paul's going to go this morning in 1 Corinthians 5. He's going to begin to talk about judging, right? And he's going to bring up a case study of an ongoing, like, sin issue within the church. And so if you will, look at with me in 1 Corinthians 5. Reading in verse 1, and I just want you to notice that how verse chapter 4 ended. Paul says to them, so what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? What, right? Like, it's like your dad talking to you, right? Or with a spirit of gentleness. You know, it's kind of like, I can come however you need me to come, right? If it's, if it's with a rod, I'll do it. And so then that helps us kind of flow into chapter 5. So it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn, let him who has done this be removed from among you? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced a judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting isn't good. Do you not know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers, the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, if he is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, so purge the evil person from among you. All right, so, right, like Paul pretty much says, hey, do you want me to come in gentleness or bring the rod? And then he just brings the rod, right? Like he just kind of goes into it here. And so where I want us, to, we kind of need to set the scene as to what is going on, right? So Paul is writing a letter, right, to a group of people that he knows. We, we saw in chapter 1 that Chloe, one of them, has brought back reports of what's going on in Corinth. 
We'll see in chapter 16 several men are listed that they've been coming back and forth and telling him what's going on. There's been letters back and forth from Corinth, right, to Ephesus and to Paul. And so Paul's aware of what's going on, and he knows the people who are involved. And so what has come to his attention is that there's a man that is having an affair with his stepmother, right? We, what we don't know is if, there's, if, his, if his father is dead or alive, right? We don't know the age. We don't know the situation. You know, was it a financial, th- right? He's just saying, here's what's going on. We know that the, the man obviously claims to be a believer because he's addressing it to the church, to believers. You'll notice the woman is not addressed at all, again, right? So we can, we can surmise from that she's not a believer, right? Because Paul does not say, right, two believers in the church, this is happening. He's talking about this man who is calling himself a believer is acting in this way, and we need to deal with it. Um, very likely, the man had some status, right? It's why it hasn't been dealt with. Whether it was social status, whether it was financial status, then they're just kind of letting it go. He, he, he doesn't feel the need to give the guy's name because obviously it was just known, right? He's not saying, hey, y'all need to know about what's going on with Joe over here. He just says, you all know because I'm in Ephesus and I know that this one who is called a brother is living in a way, right, that is not pleasing and is not right. You can look back at Deuteronomy 2230 at Leviticus 20.11, they just kind of flat out call this sin, right? That, that a man, doesn't matter that it's not his mom, doesn't lay, right? Doesn't, doesn't have his stepmom. That's it's not appropriate. We see that it's ongoing. He doesn't say in verse 1 um, that he has had. He says he has. It is an ongoing thing. So it's an ongoing relationship. And so, so Paul immediately, right, he brings up for, for those who had a more religious background that would have come from a Jewish background, right, he's like, you know this, right, you know this from Deuteronomy, you know this from Leviticus, you know it from the law. But he also says, look, in case you're maybe just a, a native Corinthian, Jewish history isn't your thing, even pagans say this is wrong, right? So he's going, in, in, our, in our moral culture or our immoral culture, that was super lax in this era, right, where, where lots of partners were allowed. There was very little rules when it came to relationships. I'm trying to be a little careful with ears in the room. Um, that he said, but even amongst the pagans, those who had no religious background or no, like, guiding principle, this was seen as off the table, out of, out of bounds, not allowed. So he's like, it's not just that you're doing something that the culture would say, yeah, that's okay. He's like, even your pagan culture is like, what? He's like, so you're, you're set up as the church to be like the temple, right? Like this, this holy place reflecting the image of God in your, in your culture, in your city, and you're living and allowing things to happen that are worse than even the immoral, unbelieving culture allows. He's like, and, and so, remember, he's walked through in the first four chapters saying, y'all are arrogant, and you're boastful, and you think you're really spiritual, and that you've arrived as like these spiritually elite, you're kings, and you think I'm a fool. He goes, you have been boasting in these things. He goes, let me give you an example of what you're boasting about. You think you're wise, 
and you're allowing this to take place among the people of God. Right? Like he's like, this, this is shameful. This is one way that I'm telling you that you're not who you think you are. You're outwardly proud because you're not addressing it. And, and it, I couldn't really come up with like a, a great like, like picture of what this looks like. All I could think about is a little boy, right? Um, catching maybe a frog or a snake or something, right? And he's so proud of catching it, and he runs up to show you that he's got it, right? And, in the, in the, and he's proud of it, but in the means of catching it, he's killed it, right? And so it's like kind of mangled and dead. And he's like, look at my frog. And like the frog's just kind of like dead, right? And you're like, man, you're really proud of that. Probably shouldn't be, right? Because you, you, you killed the frog in order to like, you know, obtain it. And so he's saying, like, church, you're holding up saying, look at who we are. We're spiritual and we're wise. And Paul, we're better than you. And he's like, and you've got this filth and you're not addressing it at all. You're letting it go on. Like, what are you doing? He says, like, the fact that that it's not only that it's gone on, but that you don't mourn over it, that you are numb to it. He said, you should be broken over this sin. But you're not mourning. You're just letting it go. You're continuing to meet. You're not addressing it at all. So this is the issue. So why does it matter? Right? Like, why is he willing to, like, come at this guy, right, publicly? Why is he bringing it before the whole church? And, and it's important for us to note that it is communal, right? That he doesn't just say, hey, y'all know what's going on with this guy. Deal with it. He says, y'all are involved. Remember back in chapter 3, he, when he's talking about that the church is the temple, he says, y'all are the temple. Y'all have the Spirit of God. It's not you as an individual, and you as an individual, and you as, he says, y'all. And so now he's saying, y'all, us, we're at risk here. If this is going on, we risk destruction. And so this has to be dealt with. It's, it's for your good, not just this gentleman, this man's good. It's also for y'all's good. And so in verses 6 through 8, he, he brings in some interesting, like, comparisons. He just reminds in verse 6, your boasting isn't good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so he brings up again something that would have been very familiar to the Jewish audience, right, Um, of this idea of leaven. And leaven's a little bit different than yeast, I've learned. Leaven, what would happen is you'd make your bread for the week, and then you would pinch off a bit. And you would let it, like, continue to ferment. They would add different things to it so that it would continue to grow. It's kind of like the idea of sourdough bread, right? And then you would add it to your new dough for the week to bring your bread to rise, right? And so each week you're taking off a little bit and starting it new and taking some off and starting new. And so over the course of a year, it could actually like become like nasty, right? It could become infected, um, it, could, it could not be what you want it to be. It could become something far worse and far, far less than what it's meant to be. And so if we go all the way back to Exodus, right, where we just were, in Exodus 12, before the Passover happens, which is when God rescues his people from Egypt, he tells them, I want you to remove like all the leaven, and you're going to eat unleavened bread. And a festival emerged out of the Passover, which was when God rescued his people, Okay. And so when God rescues his people, he says, you're going to remember this every single year. 
And here's how you're going to remember it. You're first, you're going to spend time getting all of the leaven out of your house. You're sweeping, you're throwing it out, you're starting over from scratch. And it became a symbol, right? For one, it was healthy, right? Just kind of start over to have a fresh start. But he says that it became known that leaven was sin. Leaven was corruption. And so you got to keep things clean. you got to keep things holy. you got to get this stuff out of your house. Symbolically, you got to get it out of your life. He says, why? Because it only takes a pinch of it to corrupt the whole loaf. He's saying, and you think it's innocent, you think it's simple, you think it's just, I'm just going to add it to the loaf, and he goes, but it's infected, and it's going to make you sick, and it's insidious because you don't look at it as something corrupting in your home. You look at it as something good and healthy and nutritious, and you continue to add it to your loaf. He's like, so we've got to get the leaven out of the house. So what he's saying is this, that this gentleman in this situation had become leaven. And they're corrupting the whole loaf. And he says, so y'all are at risk of destruction because you're allowing this leaven to remain, this sin to remain, and it is corrupting far more than you know. It's infiltrating far more than you know, and it's going to have an effect on all of us far more than you know. And so he's taking them back to Exodus 12. And then He says, look, he continues, he says, so cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He said, like, we are supposed to be in Christ like this new loaf, this new lump, right? Because he has cleansed us. He's brought holiness as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he continues this Exodus theme. And he says, so it wasn't just that you cleansed your house of all the leaven. He says, you also looked back then, and that's what made you holy. It's what made you right. It's what rescued you was that that the Passover came, right? Like that God spared you through the blood. He says, so we know now as the church, he's telling the church in Corinth, we know that the reason we're right with God that we have a chance to be holy, that we have a chance to be unleavened bread, as it, as you, if you follow his argument, is because Christ was the ultimate Passover lamb. That in his perfect and obedient life, he then dies the death that we deserve, which satisfies the anger, the wrath of God towards those who aren't holy, right? Towards those who are full of leaven. He's like, so Christ does it. He makes us right He satisfies the anger of God towards us. And he says, so then you continue for the rest of your life, right, to remove the leaven. And it's not that in the removing of the leaven you get God's attention. It's not in the removing of your sin that you earn salvation. You were given it as a gift. And so then we continue to walk in these holy lives because of what God's already established for us. Because it's evidence, it's progress saying, I realize that I have the, the, the chance and the opportunity to be holy now because of what Christ did. And so then as we remove sin from our lives, we're saying, because Christ has made me able and willing and desirous of that. Verse 6, your boasting isn't good. Right? He's like, you're boasting in this. And it's shameful. The end of chapter 1 and verse 31, he tells them the only thing we should boast in. It's not men. It's not in sin. It's not in our status. It's in Christ. 
He's like, so when we boast in Christ, we're saying, look at the one who rescued us. Look at the Holy One who lived the life we were meant to live and we couldn't. Look at the Holy One who died so that we didn't have to. Look at the Holy One who then beat sin and Satan and death and is alive today. Like we're boasting in Him because He's made us right with God. Because He's given us peace and, and, and security and stability. Because He's given us forgiveness and love and eternity. And He's like, and you want to boast in these things? Like do you not see the, the significance of how good Jesus is versus the things that you're actually boasting in. So he wants them to see that it's not just this man and this relationship, but that it, all of us are at risk. And so he's using one example, but what he's saying is it's, it's this look of, of a believer who has habitual sin, right? Like sin that's just going, that's not repented of. He says, when the church begins to allow that, it's a slippery slope where we begin to go, I don't want to say anything about their sin because you might say something about my sin. And all of a sudden, right, like this infection begins to work among us. And we no longer are the temple of God, right? Reflecting Him to a, a world that's in need of it. But we become this broken thing that's worthy of destruction because instead of boasting in Christ, we're boasting in our, in our sin. Remember in, in 1 Corinthians 3, he said this, do you, meaning y'all, do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all, right? Beautiful. But he continues in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. We're now seeing an example of this, right? He's saying, remember I told you y'all are the temple, the Spirit resides in y'all, but I told you that if someone looks to destroy the temple, destroys what God is doing, God is going to take them out. And so he's saying, this gentleman is here, and y'all are allowing it. And so y'all are at risk, not just this man and his sin. Because you're boasting in it rather than in the cross. You're more concerned with this man's status and what benefit you gain from it than what God has done and what he's asked us to do. He's telling us, like, there is a standard, right? Like, there is an expectation, and we live in a world now, much like the Corinthians, where the world does not want to admit that there's a standard, that there's a baseline, that we want to create our own. And, and what's good for me is good for me, and what's good for you is good for you, unless yours messes with mine, and then mine trumps yours, right? And what he's saying is there's a standard, and there's an expectation, and we don't set it. God has and he's done it through the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. That there is an expectation that he rescues those who don't deserve it, and then he transforms them. And so we should reflect that. We should look like that. And so then what do we do with this? Here's what, here's what they're to do. I want you to look at this. Look in verse 2. He says, so you're arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? Let him who has done this, what does he say, be removed from among you. In verse 3, he says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 7, kind of in a metaphorical language, so cleanse out the old leaven. He's saying again, remove. Verses 12 and 13. Um, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not 
Is it not those inside the, inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you, which he's quoting from Deuteronomy 17, 7 there. So he, there's, what Paul is telling them is, get rid of him. You remove him now. It's not up for debate. It's not up for conversation. He doesn't, right? You remove him. They're out. Move him out. And he's not saying it just to the leaders. He's saying it to the body, to all of them. This is the responsibility, is to remove him. So here's where things begin to kind of to get hairy as we think about your church experience, our church, like all these things. So what's the expectation? Paul's expectation is that he's going to receive like suffering and pain, right? He says, like, look, we're turning him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, right? That's, that's his expectation of what's going to happen. But what is his hope? What's the purpose? Is that he would be rescued so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, right? And so what he's saying is, like, you've got to remove him so that he sees the, like, the horrible nature of what's going on, that he would be broken and mourn over this. He said, so I don't know what's going to happen to him when we remove him from our body and we put him back out in the world. I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's going to be painful, though. But we're doing it not to punish him, right? We're doing it so that he would be saved, so that he would see the grievousness of this, so that he would see the depth of this sin, so that he would repent and come back, so that he would not be lost eternally, right? He, so what is he saying subsequently is this. If you don't, you're kind of letting him think that everything's okay. And he's going to end up being destroyed eternally. Right? Because you just kind of let him do his own thing. Because you didn't want to embarrass him or because he was um, a man of finances or means or status. So the expectation that things are going to be painful in the world is he's saying like he's going back out to those who are living like a life that is very opposed to what we're living here. So, kind of subtly what he's saying is there should be something so good and so sweet that is happening amongst us as believers that he would miss out on that, right? Like that he would go, I don't want to be removed from the communion that is had here, from those who are living out the one another, who are praying for one another, forgiving one another, bearing one another's burdens. He said it should hurt to be removed from this. They were a culture of honor and shame. It's like you're bringing shame upon him, right, so that he would see the error of his ways, so that he would be rescued and saved. So and if you go back to Leviticus 20, the, the penalty for this specific sin is laid out, and it's death, okay? But Paul doesn't say, hey, next time he shows up, everybody bring a rock, right? Like, it's not what he says. Right, like what we're seeing is in the Old Testament, remember they were, as we walked through Exodus, they were a nation. They were setting up like this, this legal entity, right? Like that they were a people with laws that were governing them. And so they had punishments. As a church, we are not a physical national entity. We're a spiritual organism, right? We're the, the, the body of Christ, right? And so we don't crucify we don't stone. We don't kill, right? Instead, we have church discipline where you remove someone from the fellowship of what is going on 
in the hopes that not to punish them, but in the hopes that they would be redeemed, that they would see the error of their way. Now, we've already seen a lot of sin kind of walked through. Like, there's people that are being gossips, and there's people that are, like, creating factions and bringing disunity. It's not that he says, anybody that sins, immediately remove them, right? That's not the intent here. It is habitual sin, unrepentant, consistent sin, and you continue to say, but I love Jesus as I just walk in my brazen and blatant sin. He says, in that point, you do something about it. You remove them. And so what we have now, right, here's what you would hear someone say. You you hear it in song lyrics. You hear it on the internet. You see it in, in conversation. Only God can judge me. Who are you, right? Only, only God can judge me, or that's my sin, don't worry about it, right? You can't judge me. Oh, you without sin cast the first stone, right? And they, and they start taking these, like, ideas from Scripture to say, you can't talk about my sin, you can't talk about my stuff. Here's the thing, when you say only God can judge me, He will. He's going to, Right? Like, that, that is part of it. And, and usually those who will say, only God can judge me, don't know what that looks like. He's going to judge us, all of us. And you're either going to be in one of two camps. You're either going to stand there covered in the sin of your life before a holy God, and you'll be separated from Him forever, punished for all eternity, or He has judged Christ on your behalf, and you've been found innocent because Christ was crushed for you, because Christ was punished for you, because Christ took the weight of what you could not carry and paid it and then beat it and gives you His righteousness. You will be judged. It's just whether Christ does it on your behalf and you stand there now innocent in His righteousness, or you'll stand there and you will be judged and it will not be pretty. Right? Th- those are the two options. And so he says, like, how are you boasting in this if you really believe that you are cleansed and that you are holy and you've been made holy by Jesus? How can you let this sin linger? How can you let them run with it like it's no big deal, like it's of no consequence? Because the world is watching, right? And the gospel is real and it really does transform. And you've stooped to a lower level than the world would even stoop. And yet you say that God can rescue Look at verse 13. He says, so it's those inside the church that we judge. So he's saying you do judge those inside the church who would call themselves believers. Right? And we'll get into that in just a second. Look at verse 13 though. But God will judge those outside. Right? Like the day of the Lord will come. We see this in Galatians 5, 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. He says, like, look, in Christ, you've been crucified. And so then we continue to walk in step with the Spirit, becoming more Christ-like. And here's what's happened. Look at verse 9. We see a previous letter that we don't have anymore that Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, meaning a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he writes this, and there was some misunderstanding, right? That they're like, well, if we can't associate with anybody, then we can't know anybody, right? 
And so Paul is bringing some clarification here. And he goes, listen, here's what I meant. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to leave the world. He's like, if you can't associate with people who are wrapped up in sin, then you can't live in the world. It's like, I didn't, I didn't tell you not to associate with people who have sin. Those who are outside, who, those who do not claim Jesus. He said, but now... In verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Saying those who would claim Christ and then they would be guilty of sexual immorality and greed, idolaters, revelers, drunkards, swindlers. He's like, you don't even have a meal with them. You don't interact with them because they're claiming Christ and they're bringing shame upon him. Again, this is not someone who commits sin once. This is habitual sin, ongoing, unrepentant. Hey, you know this isn't what Jesus wants. I'll do what I want. You can't judge me. That kind of attitude, right? And so what happens then is he says, so if it's someone from within the church, right, you don't associate with them. You don't let them think that you're okay with it. You don't even have a meal with them. But if it's someone that's outside the church, if it's someone who does not claim Christ yet, he says, that's who we all once were. So we run to them, and we pursue them, because we believe the gospel's real, and that it brings new out of old, and it brings life where there's death. Like, the gospel actually does transform, and that's our story. And so we pursue people who don't know Jesus. And so, right, it, it, does it, I don't know if it feels like a double standard or not, but a lot of times the church, and we say it too, like, everybody's welcome, right? Everyone who claims Jesus is welcome, unless you're living in blatant, habitual sin, unrepentant. And then Paul would say, you're not welcome. But everyone who's engaged in those sins and does not yet claim Christ, they're welcome. Because we're going to hold up a better way and a better standard, and we're going to say, Jesus, would you save them? Because we were once like that, and you've rescued us, and you've, you've saved us, and you've redeemed us. So this is one of the reasons membership matters, right? Because we know who it is that is saying, I trust Jesus. And so that if I begin to walk astray, I'm giving you the right to speak into my life and to say, repent. There is an expectation and there is a standard. And this is the way you're meant to walk. And if you won't, you're going to be removed from that. And not out of pride or haughtiness, right? It's not this like, because I'm better than you. Man, this is like brokenness. This is humility saying we want nothing more for you to trust Jesus and to be saved and to be rescued. And you are, you are shaming his name in this. And so as much as it pains and it hurts me to remove someone from my family, we've got to do that so that maybe, right, your hard heart will be broken and you'll see the truth. Right? You don't do that with joy. You don't do it to like keep the, you know, keep everything clean and pure. You do it out of brokenness and out of concern for your brother, your sister in Christ, right, who has walked astray. So what does it mean to judge inside the church, right? Scripture is going to tell us as, as Jesus talks about, you know, be careful, like how you judge is how you'll be judged, right? We, we don't judge motives. We do judge fruit and behavior, right? So let me give you an example of what it means to judge motive, um, and I did this, and I'm ashamed that I did this, but there was, some of you, unfortunately, were standing there when I did this. There was a Sunday morning where I was standing in the back of the room, and a woman 
comes up. She had only been at Redeemer a couple times. And I pride myself on not judging by outward appearance. But sometimes when you talk a lot, sin comes out. And so she says, hey, I would really like to, to serve up here if that's possible. Um, we do a lot of community service during the week since we're next door to the jail. We have people stopping in all the time wanting to do community service. And so instead of asking her what she had in mind, I jumped a step and I judged her motives and her intentions. And I said, so how many hours of community service do you need? She didn't need any. Right? She didn't need any. She just wanted to help. And so in that moment, I'm like, like, right? Like, I was, I was rightly humiliated and embarrassed. Fortunately, she was super gracious um, and has continued um, to, to have a friendship with Redeemer and with me. But in that moment, it was like, I, I just judged, right? No, no outward fruit, no outward behavior. I judged what I thought was going on by her motives and her intentions. And Scripture would say, we don't do that, right? Like, you don't know what's in someone's heart. But we, we do judge a believer who will claim Christ and then live in a manner that is contrary to what his explicit word would say. Right? The fruit. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of over the flow of the heart, we act. And so I don't know what's in your heart, but I can see the evidence of it. Do you notice that Paul isn't saying, hey, to Apollos and just to the leaders, this is your job? He says it to, to the church. Right? Like this is, we come together and we see this and we know this and we make a decision based on this. And we do it, we don't, we take it seriously. We don't take it lightly. We see the gravity of it. it this should make us like, right, question our own, right? Like are there any logs in my own eye? Right? Before I would want to say this to anyone, that we would take this, we would need the Spirit because it's a, it's a hard thing and it's a, it's a necessary thing, but it's also needs to be a gentle thing with the right motivation and the right intent. That's why Scripture talks about church discipline multiple times. And so we want to live as the temple, as the holy ones of God, knowing that He's the one who's given us the power to do it. He's the one who's transforming it. And then we want to pursue those who are rampant sinners, living in ways that we would find distasteful, and yet we know that apart from the grace of God, that's where we would be. That would be us, right? And so those within the church, there's judgment. And then we do not judge those who are out of the church. Instead, we hold up Christ and we call them to trust and to believe and to be transformed and to come into relationship, right? And then we have grace for them as they begin to lay aside old patterns and old ways because you know what? It's not like that, right? It takes time to walk in Christ. And it's why Paul would say, we're infants, and then we, you know, we're, eat, we're drinking milk, and then we're eating meat, and we're maturing, and we're growing. And so this is, right, again, just hear me one more time. This is for unrepentant, not listening, right, habitual, over and over sin that would say, you can't judge me because Jesus loves me, Right? That is what's at stake. And everything else, man, if someone's struggling with sin and they know it and they're repentant of it and they're broken over it and they continue to fall into it occasionally, you're not removing them from anything. You're bearing burdens with them and you're carrying them and you're praying for them and you're walking with them and you're surrounding them and you're being the body of Christ to them. Right? 
If someone repents of their sin, you respond with grace. If someone comes in and doesn't even know that what's going on is sin, right, then we, we educate with truth and with grace, right? Like we want to be salt and light. And the only way you can be salt, salt has to be in contact with something for it to make a difference. And light is only matters if there's right, darkness for the light to shine in. So we, we are not in an ivory tower here. We are not in a holy huddle separating ourselves and judging the world with our noses in the air. We are running to them on a rescue mission because Jesus has done the same for us. That he has pursued us when we demonstrated our sin and our anger and at our very worst, he loved us. When we wanted nothing more than to hate him, to war against him, to rebel against him. So church, we live in this kind of this dichotomy of how we walk together and then how we pursue the world. And the fact is that there are folks out in Pampa and in the surrounding towns right now who this morning are rebels opposed to the Lord, hating Him, who will come to faith, who will be transformed due to the grace of God, and some of that grace is going to be through your relationships with them. Your mercy and your kindness and your long-suffering and your perseverance of just saying, I love you, because God's loved me in the same way. And then I want you to see that He loves you better than I love you, right? And then, right, the simple message of the gospel begins to transform, and people believe. And as Paul said earlier in Corinthians, the power is in the fact that people are converted, right? Like that people actually believe this message. So this morning as we end, there's kind of maybe a process for us this morning. It's, it's first, is maybe this, is maybe it's just we need to examine ourselves individually and as us. Asking the Spirit, are there ways in us right now that we are turning a nose up to sin, that we are boasting in behavior that we should not boast in, that we don't walk away assuming everything's good this morning? that we would examine, right, as we, we claim Christ, Spirit, have your way with us. If sin is revealed, that we would mourn over it, that we would be broken over it, not because we were caught, but because it displeases the Holy One, because we're called to more than that. that then we would worship the One who's rescued us from it, that says, you don't have to live this way anymore, Right? that we would examine and that we would mourn and that we would worship. And then this morning, that we would examine what's our attitude towards those who don't know Jesus. And if we find ourselves angry and judgmental and self-righteous, that we would repent of that because it is wickedness and it is sin and it is not reflective of the image of the God who rescued us. That we would want to be salt in the world bringing flavor, that we'd want to be light in a dark world because we know hope, and it's not us, and it's not Redeemer, it's Jesus. And that we would do it together, right? Like that we would lock arms and do this together. Right? So church, there's so many practical implications of that. 
Um, looking forward to those conversations as we continue to walk through Corinthians, continuing to look at how sin is dealt with and encountered. Let me pray for us.